This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, we'll take you where The Health Report, and indeed Norman, has never been before. You get a rush of dopamine and serotonin when you jump out of the bath um, and you just feel Thank God really that's over. happy. <laughs> you forget about the experience and you come back the next time. Right, so it's having triumphed over adversity. <laughs> yeah, so it really helps you change your relationship with stress. Yep, I joined an ice bath class. Plus, treating chronic pain with antidepressants. A review looks at whether they work. And the recent decision from the Therapeutic Goods Administration to approve the use of the psychedelic psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression and MDMA, or ecstasy, for treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder. There's a group of researchers who are uncomfortable with that decision. One of them is Professor Pratt McGorry of the University of Melbourne and Origin, the National Centre of Excellence in Youth Mental Health. Welcome back to The Health Report, Pat. Thanks very much, Norman. What's the problem that you've got with this decision? This idea um, that they're exploring um, in this research has been around since the 1960s when these psychedelic drugs were used to basically enhance people's experience as recreational drugs. And they were explored not in any uh, serious research research methodologies or in uh, uh, universities or research centres particularly. But there have been clinical trials since. Yes, yeah, there have been clinical trials. It's been revived as an idea. And we're comfortable with the idea of it being revived. We definitely need new avenues for drug therapy in psychiatry. There's no doubt about that. Not just for treatment-resistant depression or PTSD, but for for schizophrenia, psychosis, bipolar, you name it. There's been um, a hiatus in drug improvement. So that part of the rationale is fine. And we actually at Origin have a professor of novel therapeutics who who with me and with others there have been doing trials of promising new agents of various kinds, including psychedelics. So so we are studying nearly all of these candidates except psilocybin, which is, in our view, uh, too risky to to even study. Why? Well, over my psychiatric career, I've seen countless young people become psychotic um, when they take these drugs, magic mushrooms. It's a... very risky drug to take and uh, the, the proponents of, of studying it um, or even expanding it beyond trials already would say there's no data from the more recent trials to suggest it's, uh, it's risky but that's in, in a very limited and uh, carefully selected population. Once I thought, it spreads beyond that it, it'll be very risky. I thought the risk of psychosis when you've got depression there's a, a taller hill to climb before you get to psychosis because depression uh, depresses that part of the brain that kind of controls crosstalk within the brain and that gave you a margin of safety. Uh, no, I don't think that's, that's right, Norman, I'm, I'm afraid. I, I mean, in, in the, we've studied the onset of psychosis, as you know, for the last 25 years, how people become psychotic and at least 60% of them have very serious depression on the way to the to, to that next stage, as you say, so it's almost like a gateway in, in, in those patients rather than rather than a protective factor. And what about MDMA ecstasy? <clears throat> well, that's that seems to be a safer drug, uh, as far as our research has shown. We, we are studying that in, in 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 various trials led by 
uh, Professor Jill Beatty at Origin, who's worked at Columbia for 10 years in these areas. So, so we, we, we're confident we can study that one carefully. We, we're also doing trials of ketamine, which has been licensed now. We, we, we're doing studies with cannabidiol, which is obviously a different mechanism. But So we, what I'm trying to say is we're, we're open-minded about the, about the need for, to study these drugs. So <clears> your core points are psilocybin is too risky to do it. And B, it sounds as if you're saying that they're still experimental rather than ready for showtime. Yeah, yeah. The, the evidence is promising. The studies, it's very hard to study these, these, studies, uh, these drugs with, um, uh, with, with uh, blinding, you know, placebo blinding because it's very hard to find a, a, a placebo that doesn't allow the, the investigator and the person to actually know which drug they're taking. So that's a... Because you do need to have this that, psychedelic experience. Now, there's also an issue about this, the psychological therapies that often go along with... And sometimes some would say actually need to go along with these drugs. Yeah. Well, in a different way from other psychiatric drugs which work... To, to, to help people by working directly on brain systems. These drugs uh, claim to, to work by creating a, a mental state during which psych psychological treatments are more effective. Now, the psychological treatments they are studying have not been studied in their own right. They're studied in conjunction with these, with these drugs. So some critics have said, well, the psychological treatments are unproven as well. And I suppose that the main criticism that I have is not even the study of the drugs. May, may, maybe it's fair enough for other people, even if we don't feel comfortable to study psilocybin as well. But what's happened is that the TGA, after initially, initially regarding the evidence as insufficient in response to a very intense response from um, the group Mind Medicine Australia that's leading this, um, have actually reversed their decision. And it seems a very unusual decision. The second area of worry is that Mind Medicine Australia have been planning for this decision to be made and uh, funding the training of, of, of significant numbers of psychiatrists and also the distribution of the drug uh, of, the, of the two drugs throughout Australia. So it's going to spread, I think, I, uh, I hope I'm wrong, but uh, to large, large numbers of people. And treatment-resistant depression is a very common um, condition in Australia. So I'm, I think the risk is going to uh, potentially outweigh the, the benefits if there are any. Well, we'll pursue this further and we'll get Mind Medicine Australia hopefully on next week to talk about this issue. Pat McGorry, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Norman. Pat McGorry is Professor of Youth Mental Health at the University of Melbourne and is also Director of Origin, the National Centre of Excellence in Youth Mental Health. Stepping in when you're ready. Slowing down that breath. <sighs> okay. Slowing it down. <laughs> Talk about triggering. I like your uh, your quick pivot from not swearing there, but Norman, I don't have a clue what I'm listening to here. Well, what you're listening to is an ice bath session that I went to about ten days ago. Why? Well, everybody else is doing it. There's a lot of things being claimed for it, and I thought, well, I'll try it for myself rather than throwing rocks from the sidelines, let's just get into it, so to speak. <laughs> and I went down to an eastern suburbs beach in Sydney where they do this um, a couple of times a week. So, Deb, I am crapping myself here. Is that common? Yeah, yeah. That's generally the response that I get when I tell people out and about that I run ice bath sessions. Everyone says, I can't do it. 
it's way too terrifying. So. And do they stay terrified all the way through or it resolves itself? So generally, that's why we do the breath work first. So the breath work basically takes you from a sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight, flight, stress state. Yeah, I want to run your, away from this ice bath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Into your parasympathetic nervous system, which is where you feel more calm. So you're diluting your body. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> you're just helping yourself reframe thoughts and moving out of that adrenaline state where you're feeling super stressed so that then you can get out of the head, connect into the body meeting me on the bottom of your next exhale. So talk to me about this breath work, Norman, this idea of like kind of gaining control over your breath to kind of handle this incredibly extreme environment. Well, this is the method promoted by a Dutch entrepreneur called Wim Hof, who by the, the way... The iceberg guy. iceberg guy who goes for half marathons in the Arctic and goes swimming with the icebergs. And he's been promoting this for a long time. He's a worldwide phenomenon. It's huge. Coming to Australia next month, presumably to a sellout event. He's, he's not a scientist, though, but he sort of pioneered this and then it, it's sort of taken off and people are then sciencing it after the fact. In many ways, although there's, a, there's science before this. I mean, they've been studying cold immersion for decades now. I mean, the original studies were in downed pilots in the North Sea in wartime, I'm not, when, if not in the original studies, then certainly very early on. So that's why a lot of the, this research is actually military but Wim Hof has popularised it, and the, the beginning of the Wim Hof method is breath work, where you just kind of relax yourself. It's a bit of mindfulness, focusing on your breathing, and it's a good thing because your breathing is what goes a bit out of control when you go into the bath. Hold, two, three, out. Two. Okay, so I'm so super stressed. So let's make it worse. What's the worst thing that's happened to somebody who's come to one of your workshops? They've got tingly fingers and toes. Tingly. Pretty serious. All right. Okay. I think I can cope with that. I thought you said bad things would happen, Norman. I wouldn't categorise tingly fingers as being that bad. No. No, it's not. But worse things could happen, potentially. Um, although with a two-minute immersion, which is what they keep it strictly to, the risk is low. But we spoke to Mike Tipton. So Professor Mike Tipton at the University of Portsmouth. And he's a world authority on cold immersion and what happens. We're a tropical animal. We want to be naked in air at 28 degrees Celsius, which is where what most people are booking for their holiday. So if you take that tropical animal, air breathing, and you drop it into water, it's a pretty serious stress and stimulus. And we respond to that with a, a sympathetic-driven, nervous system-driven fight-or-flight response. When you put the face into the water, you get a parasympathetic, the opposite arm of the autonomic nervous system, which is trying to slow everything down. It's an oxygen-conserving response. But as far as the heart's concerned, when you've got the whole body in the water, including the face or the face being splashed, you've got two inputs. You've got one trying to accelerate the heart and make it beat harder, the sympathetic fight-or-flight cold shock response, and you've got one trying to slow it and decrease the strength of contraction. And those two inputs conflict. And that's when you see, particularly after breath-holding, a cardiac arrhythmia so people can have a heart attack if the cold is too intense or it goes on for too long? If it goes on for too long. Interestingly, the ice bath phenomenon with responsible people like Deb doing it, they do not immerse your face. You just go in up to your neck because there is this difference when you do that. The thought is that for people who are doing a, you know, extended cold water swimming and with the face underneath, the gasping that you get can cause you to inhale water and you can get cardiac strain and cardiac arrest. So this is in a bit more controlled environment. So, okay, you could have a heart attack. 
<laughs> if you don't do it right. It's tingly. It's not nice. We all want to be naked at 28 degrees. That's what stood out for me just now. What are the purported health benefits or what's the attraction here? It depends. There are some people who believe that when you've had a heavy training session, that going into an ice bath improves muscle recovery and maybe muscle growth. That's controversial and there's not there's contradictory evidence on that. Some people believe it settles down your immune system and reduces inflammation, which is where the living younger, longer idea comes from. That's the Wim Hof notion. And then some people do it just simply for the psychological benefit. They are scared, like me. They meet a challenge and they conquer the challenge. I believe I've been told that once you're actually in that situation, you don't have time to think about anything else in life. So it comes with those thoughts that you kind of live with every day. So just want to see what that kind of experience is all about. I think it's a mental challenge, firstly. And then, I don't know, it seems to just make you happier. Quite simple, really. <laughs> so there is a rush element to it. What about other mental health benefits? Well, the, the gloating... I mean, the bragging don't response. Well, yeah, don't underestimate right. the power of gloating. Well, this is like an extended brag on the health report. Um, you, you get this rush and this stress and you, you get out of it and you do feel more alive and happy after having done it. <laughs> so what people are experiencing is a non-exercising way, i.e. a thermal drive rather than a metabolic drive, that releases a lot of stress hormones you may have experienced this uh, as well, Norman. You know, you get quite anxious about it. Anxious about it? I was shitting myself. <laughs> <laughs> so stress hormones, is that a good thing then? Well, yeah, if it's limited and it's not over an extended period. I've talked about you know, this supposed immune improvements, inflammation, muscle recovery, all of which are a bit controversial as to whether or not they actually occur. But I also asked Mike about uh, the danger side. On the danger side, we have a lot of evidence, good quality science telling us about the risks. The beneficial side is still largely anecdotal evidence. That's still evidence, but it needs to be followed up with definitive studies. So I can't wait any longer. This is it. No, I think it's your turn. So what it's I do, to... deep breath. Well, nothing could be more definitive, Norman, than you doing it yourself. We haven't actually talked about what the experience was like for you yet. What was going through your head as you were about to lower yourself into the ice bath? Don't do it. Don't do it, was the main thing that's going through my head. Um, I, I was interested in what the experience would elucidate, but you just don't know what you're going to feel like and experience when you go through it. So here's what it was a bit like. Stepping in when you're ready. So at this point, I'm gasping and breathing quite heavily. So we're just going to slow that breath down, breathing in through the nose and out. In. And I could feel my heart slowing down at the same time as I wanted to speed up, which is the autonomic conflict that Mike Tipton talked about. Slowing it down. <laughs> Do you feel like you're regaining a sense of control through this? Slowly. So it's starting to feel a bit better by now. But now I've got a piece of camera. Well, I can't pretend that it's not cold. It is freezing. Not quite as freezing as you think, though. Are you joking? <laughs> that was my next-door neighbour in the next bucket. <laughs> Are you halfway through already, Norman? I don't know what you were talking about. This is going very fast for me. And it's probably the longest two minutes of my life. Thank goodness for that. 
so then you run into the ocean to warm up. You do, paradoxically, yeah. And um, Did it feel warm? It did. It felt very warm. But I must say, look, my reflection of it is that when we talked to the people who came along, nobody was coming for the putated physical effects. Almost everybody we spoke to, in fact, if not everybody, were coming for the psychological benefits. And, you know, and I must say, you know, I suppose it's a bit like bungee jumping. You go into it and you, you get this rush. Um, probably there's some benefit, of, who knows, from the ice itself. And having done it, you feel better for having done it. You certainly feel more alive and tingly. It was exhilarating. I actually feel so much better after doing that. So it was just like you couldn't think of anything else while you were doing it. It was like that constant, like, concentration of trying to survive for those two minutes. So, yeah, it was an experience. I loved it. If I can be comfortable in the uncomfortable for two minutes out of my whole day in the ice, I try to take that mindset into other things. For someone who's an overthinker as well, which I think is me, being in the ice forces me into feeling rather than thinking because you have to feel because it's cold. Did you take that with you throughout the day as well, Norman? Did you kind of feel like energised for the rest of the day? Well, if not the rest of the next couple of hours, felt pretty good, yeah. You get a bit habituated to it, I think, once you do it repeatedly. But nonetheless, I don't think I met anybody who really liked the two minutes in the, in the ice bath. It was the before and after that they liked. I feel like I'm not loving it as much <laughs> as you. you just got to calm that breath down. And, and again, I, I tried to, with Mike Tipton to explore what might be the motivation for this. Certainly in high-income countries, we've become so comfortable you know, we've got air conditioning, we've got heating, we've got it in the car, we've got it in the office, we've got it in the home. We've become what I would call thermostatic. Uh, we hardly ever change our, our temperature. And yet you need to challenge these systems in order to maintain their functionality. Everybody knows that about the musculoskeletal system, use it or lose it. They're just different ways of just perturbing the system and not remaining comfortable. I'm more likely to want to do hot yoga than an ice bath, personally. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, on the health report, we do explore this theme of stressing your metabolism through intermittent fasting or high-intensity interval training, where your body is stressed in a safe kind of way and responds well. So who knows whether this is part of that. Okay, so if we are wanting to challenge ourselves in a safe way, what kind of safety things are we talking about? Well, I think you do do it in a class that's supervised. You don't do it by yourself at home. And out. Just focus on my voice, focus on the breath. You can do I think probably the breath work is good for you because it does relax you and get you into a frame of mind. You need to do it with somebody who's sensible and strictly limits the time you're in and you don't get any machismo happening where we're going to plunge in and stick our head under. Sticking your head under is really not a good idea because the first thing that you get is a gasp. And so if your head's under, you're gasping and you could be swallowing water. So just being sensible about it, doing it with somebody who knows what they're doing. And if you've got a cardiac problem, you really do need to talk to your GP before you do it. And, um, and that's probably basically it. You know, realise that this is um, a stressful activity. I mean, you wouldn't go out buy a pair of running shoes and, and the first thing you do is a marathon. Do you have to do this, though, to be healthy? Like, isn't there some kind of nice, even keel, happy medium? Yeah, you go out and do a run, exercise eat modestly, have frugal days, maybe even do a bit of intermittent fasting. There's lots of ways to do this. You don't have to do ice baths, but for some people, it actually you know, turns them on. Let's give them a cheer, guys. Let's give them some love. Cheer them 
you get a rush of dopamine and serotonin when you jump out of the bath um, and you just feel Thank really God that's over. happy. <laughs> you forget about the experience and you come back the next time. Right, so it's having triumphed over adversity. <laughs> yeah, so it really helps you change your relationship with stress. Next four, ready please. Ten, nine, eight. So are you going to do it again? Not immediately, no. I oh, go I'll, on. I don't think I'll hold off, but... Um, <laughs> I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be so scared next time. I know, what, I know what I'm going to experience. Well, you put your body on the line for science. For that, we applaud you, Norman. Yeah, and I think Deb's right. It does change your relationship with stress a little bit when you go through that acute stressful situation, which is probably why people do bungee jumping and other things as well. And I suspect this is a lot safer than bungee jumping. <laughs> You'll have to do that and compare the pair. Then you can really have an opinion no. about it. No. <laughs> down. Okay. Slowing it down. <laughs> so all I can say to you is just repeat, do not do this at home by yourself. And if you've got heart disease, probably don't do it at all, just to be wise. And have you been wearing a scarf ever since? <laughs> Hasn't ever quite recovered from well, the cold? That's right. We, we used to call it in Glasgow, chittery bite. In Glasgow, actually, <laughs> funny enough, we used to go down to the beach in summer and it was like cold weather and you'd put up a windbreaker, you'd be wearing a thick jumper and you'd go into the water and swim and come back and have hot soup. So you know, maybe it's Oh, here you are telling us you're a novice, but actually you've been training yeah, for this since childhood. Hardened from childhood, absolutely. Well, let's move on. Chronic non-cancer-related pain is common and hard to treat. It can occur where at some point there's been trauma or infection in part of the body. That's healed, but the person is left with very real pain. Painkillers generally don't work. Surgery can make it worse. And alternate med- medications are often used, one group of which are antidepressants. Not so much actually for their antidepressant effect, but because of their theoretical action on the brain. A group of researchers has put together the available evidence on antidepressants and chronic pain and tried to come to a conclusion about whether they work. Dr Giovanni Ferreira is an NHNMRC Emerging Leadership Fellow at the Institute for Musculoskeletal Health at the University of Sydney, and he was the lead author. Welcome to the Health Report, Giovanni. Hi, Norman. Thanks for having me. So which antidepressants did you look at or were the reviews capturing? So we looked at a big range of antidepressants, eight, eight classes of antidepressants spanning from SNRI antidepressants, tricyclic antidepressants, SSRI, which are very commonly used for, the, uh, for depression. So a, a whole range of antidepressants. So that alphabet mix there, but the tricyclics <laughs> are older antidepressants and they're often the ones that are, are thought to change the brain in a beneficial way for lots of different things. That's it. Uh, Tricyclic antidepressants have been in the market for decades, for the past 50 years. Uh, they've been used for treating chronic pain, actually. The first trials looking at antidepressants and tricyclics like amitriptyline uh, were published in the late 70s, early 80s uh, with mixed results. So, yeah, they are thought to work on the brain and, and, and make you your pain get better. So what you did was took all of the clinical trials, the evidence, available evidence, you reviewed it, put it together to come up with a conclusion. And so what did you find? So we looked at uh, over 100, 150 clinical trials involving over 25,000 participants. And we found that for most antidepressants and for most pain conditions, the evidence is either inconclusive or the antidepressants are not effective for reducing pain. We did find that some antidepressants for some pain conditions, for example, fibromyalgia, neuropathic pain, which is nerve pain, uh, cancer pain related to uh, treatment uh, for cancer, um, 
and irritable bowel syndrome and uh, tension type headache, these conditions, some antidepressants were effective for treating pain in those conditions. Which ones? So uh, SNRI antidepressants, so for example, duloxetine, they were uh, effective for a number of conditions, including back pain, post-operative pain, fibromyalgia, neuropathic pain, uh, cancer pain, depression. And I should just explain, fibromyalgia pain. is really a catch-all catch term for chronic pain. I mean, for my fibromyalgia, just read chronic pain in any part of the body, really. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, th there are diagnostic criteria to diagnose someone with fibromyalgia. Uh, so it's it's not a very, it's a non-specific condition, but yes, there are diagnostic criteria to define someone as having fibromyalgia, but it, it is used as an umbrella term as well. So when you go down to specifics, there, were, well, there was some evidence that they worked, but it, but it wasn't, as, you had to be quite specific about the condition and the antidepressant. Yeah, so our interpretation of the data is that there has to be some nuance when looking at antidepressants. When you say antidepressants, uh, you're talking about dozens of different medications. We have to look at which medication we're talking about, which condition are we talking about in order to make a decision about whether they work or not for their pain problem. Now, the problem with reviews such as yours is if it's rubbish in, it's rubbish out. How good were the trials and how confident are you in the results even when they did work? So one of the reasons why a lot of the evidence in our review was inconclusive uh, is uh, because a lot of the evidence that we included in the review was uh, of low quality or there weren't enough studies or the studies were rather small. So that, that is a big problem. Uh, we did find that for some conditions, uh, there are some large studies that have been done, for example, for back pain, for nerve pain and for fibromyalgia. And uh, for those conditions, SNRI antidepressants, they were effective, but those large studies were all funded by uh, and sponsored by pharmaceutical industries, which we know tend to overestimate the effects of treatments. So, so, yeah, so industry-supported studies are notorious for being positive. They, they are more likely to be positive and to have more optimistic results. Um, so what does this say to somebody who's got chronic pain? I mean, we know that opioids don't work, in fact, make it a lot worse. Uh, your group has found that even paracetamol and, and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are not terribly effective. So painkillers themselves are not much cop. Is it worth trying antidepressants? Is it worth talking to your doctor about it? Uh, I think it is a it is a discussion that, that definitely uh, can happen between a patient and a doctor. There are several factors to be considered. Antidepressants are prescription medicines. They come with a lot of adverse events, uh, a lot of uh, side effects, uh, pardon, that need to be discussed with a doctor uh, for the patient to be informed about them and then decide whether they wanted to, you know, do a trial of antidepressants. They're also, you also have to have a, a discussion about which antidepressant for which pain condition. So it's, it's a complex uh, discussion, but if you feel like you, 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 as a patient, you would like to have that discussion with a doctor, I think it's worth it. I mean, there are drugs on the market. There's one with a brand name Lyrica, which were not originally intended to be used as uh, drugs against pain which have been controversial. So if you move beyond antidepressants, are those commonly used ones which really can mess with your head with side effects, do they work? Uh, depending on the condition, for example, we've showed, our group showed that for back pain and sciatica, uh, Lyrica uh, doesn't work and actually increases the chance of you being harmed by the drug. It's ineffective guidelines, no longer recommended. 
for other conditions like neuropathic pain, nerve pain, there is some evidence that, that those drugs uh, may be effective. So again, it's a discussion that have, has to take into account which pain condition we, we are talking about. It's a minefield, particularly when, when pain uh, clinics are so overwhelmed at the moment. It really is, yeah. And, and one-size-fits-all approaches definitely don't work here. They don't work for anything, but particularly for antidepressants, uh, there has to be even more nuance, I guess, I think, when, when thinking about these medicines for treating pain. Giovanni, thanks for joining us on The Health Report. Thanks, Norman. Giovanni Ferreira, who is at the Institute for Musculoskeletal Health at the University of Sydney. And that's The Health Report for this week. It is indeed. Stay warm out there, people. And if you have suggestions of how Norman should put his body on the line for science next, email us, healthreport at abc.net.au. Anyway, we'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.